10 RIA questions with Bob Virez. That is today's topic on the transition to RIA question and answer series. It is episode number 54. Hi, I'm Brad Wales with Transition to RIA, where I help you understand everything there is to know about why and how to transition to the RIA model. Uh, so on today's episode, I'm very excited because we're going to take a little bit of a change from the 50 plus episodes I've done so far in, in format, and I'll explain what I mean by that. But for those of you watching on video, uh, you can see special guest today, Bob Virez. Bob, thank you for joining. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think this is going to be, uh, I don't think, I know this is going to be a fun episode. So like I said, it's going to be a, a slightly different format. So what I mean by that is in all my episodes so far, it's been to address kind of a single macro question and we've dove into details. And, and uh, for those of you that know Bob, and I'm going to ask him to give a, a background on himself and his firm, but absolute uh, uh, thought leader in our industry uh, encyclopedia of our industry. And, and so I thought would be a great episode. I reached out to Bob and I said, hey, Bob, what I'd love to do is have you on. And I'd love to just throw 10 RIA related questions at you to get your perspective, your opinion for, for all of us, myself and all the listeners to learn from. Uh, and I gave him two, full disclosure, I gave him two questions as examples. But beyond that, I said, Bob, I don't want to give you the other questions because I want to I want to just throw them at you and get the, get the real take and to show you uh, kind of well, the, the, uh, the entertainment to follow, if you will, is uh, Bob's original response back to me when I threw that out there involved an analogy of referring to a Cold War era Russian general. So if that's any indication of, of where we're going to cover territory in our, in our questions and answers, uh, I, I think it's a good sign. So, uh, Bob, with that, before we jump into the questions, if you could give us, uh, for those that don't already know who you are in your firm, if you could give us a background on yourself and your firm, that would be great. Sure. Well, I, I have been observing the profession as a writer and journalist for 40 years. I started in almost 40 years. I started in 1982 as editor of Financial Planning Magazine, did that for 10 years. I was a columnist for almost literally all the magazines that are out there at various times. Um, I think the reason I, I went from magazine to magazine is they kind of got tired of me. I, I tend to be kind of opinionated. And I, I publish and I, I, I write for advisor perspectives, as you do. And I publish a newsletter for financial planners, and it's probably not most of your audience. Most of the people that I write for or who gravitate to my, my newsletter called Inside Information are fee-only fiduciary financial planners who are committed to making their lives, professional lives, better. And, you know, there aren't that many people in this business who think and read. And so my audience is almost all the financial planners, established financial planners who think and read. And unfortunately, that's not the majority of them. It's, it's, as I said, it's kind of a small minority. But for them, it's an unfair advantage. They have a better perspective on how they can change, what they can do, what's new, what other people are doing. And the idea being that, you know, if you're open to change, then you need information on how to do it. Indeed. And, and so to give a full a full plug, I know you 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 were humbly wouldn't do it yourself, but so your in, inside information newsletter, if I'm correct, it's the longest running practice management newsletter in existence. So how, how long have you been doing it now? Since 1990. And it's not just practice management. I mean, there's marketing in there, there's 
investments. There's technical content sometimes, you know, if something interesting shows up or a tax law changes. So it's, it's pretty much anything an advisor would want to know. But yeah, it's been around for quite a long time. 1990, I, I would say so. And we'll, I'll include in the show notes links to, uh, to Bob's website and his, his newsletter and information. And also, you also are known for your, your Insiders Forum conference that you put on, which uh, speaks for itself. I did see uh, Michael Kitsis just put it on his recent list of uh, uh, must-attend conferences for the coming year. So uh, did you want to give a, a quick background on, on what that conference, what the kind of profile of advisor that, that would be attracted to that, that conference is? Well, it's a, we have a, a target market. Most conferences, you know, we, please come, you know, if you can fog a mirror, if you're not, you know, lying in a coffin somewhere, we want to have you. And um, our target market is advisors who have outgrown the traditional conference experience. So if somebody has gone to, say, the FPA National Conference and they walk out of a session, they say, I could have presented that better than that person. And if they're right, then they're appropriate for our conference. We don't dumb anything down. We dumb things up, if that makes sense. Indeed, indeed. And I, I think it tilts more on the, the higher, the larger advisors and teams as well. Is that a fair statement or is it a pretty broad mix? It's a broad mix. Um, there are some great advisors who only have a two or three person shop. And then there are firms that are, you know, just killing it with, you know, billions of dollars under management. And they're looking for, is my revenue model appropriate? Is who who can tell me how better to manage my staff because you know the people management side of things is becoming extremely important now and then recruiting and you know so there are all sorts of issues that really need to be addressed at a high level that most people don't really get much information about okay great so we'll include that in the uh, in the uh, show notes as well so you can get information it's it's late in the year here so that the 2021 conference has already happened but I'm sure you're already uh, planning out for the 2022 conference. So, so I'll list that out. Uh, and then final thing before I jump into the first question, Bob, just on a, on a personal front, I, I, I did want to express my appreciation. Uh, Bob was very supportive of me when I first launched my firm. And at the time early in that, you know, it was essentially just a vision and an idea. And, and oftentimes you got to you got to prove yourself, not, not just with, with what you say you're going to do. And, and, and Bob, I, I appreciate you taking interest in what I'm doing and, and being supportive from, from, the, from the very beginning. And I know you've, you've supported me along the way. So, so thank you very much for that. And, and happy to report things are, are working out uh, quite well. And as, as I kind of map things out, but uh, it was no doubt in, in large part to, to support like uh, folks like you from early on. So, so thank you for that. And I, I'm, I'm going to add that there was kind of a no-brainer. Almost literally everybody who's giving advice on making what's really a, a, a very difficult transition from one model to another model has an agenda. You know, you go to Fidelity and they bring a team in. And of course, the most important thing you can do is switch over to Fidelity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and of course, you talk to the brokerage firms about switching models or you go to an independent BD or something and they have their own agenda. And then you've got the recruiters who are, you know, they, they, they have certain companies that pay them to do this. And so, you know, when you came along, it was really, you know, the, one of the very rare examples of impartial advice on something that I think is one of the more important pieces of information out there, one of the more important areas to address in the profession overall, the migration if appropriate from the brokerage and, and what W2 model to the independent model. 
Yeah. So thank thank you for for seeing that vision as I did and and being supportive and uh, and I hope to keep reporting back to you that it uh, continues to go well. So uh, again, thank you on that front. Um, so to dive right in, the first two questions Bob Bob had ahead of time, uh, but just and then and then we'll dive into the unknowns. But uh, the first one is if you Bob were standing magically up in the front of a room of wirehouse advisors. And one of them stood up and asked you what what you thought of the RAA model. What would you say to them? Well, you know, it's really you, you've got to contrast it, right? You know, you're you're in one world, and that world they 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 wrap you in cotton. They try and make you as cozy as possible. They they take as much money out of your pocket as they possibly can without you leaving. And, and so you have to recognize, you know, that you're not really on the same side of the table as your employer in that case, because what they're trying to do is maximize how much they can make off of what you and your clients are um, investing or, and what you're doing. And so if you, if you recognize that, then you can do an objective assessment of, you know, all right, is it worth, and you've, you've written articles about this, is it worth what I'm paying that company for the things I'm getting? And is it worth the intangibles. You know, if you go out on your own, if you're an independent RIA, you can talk to your clients like an adult. You can talk to the press. You're, there are certain compliance issues that don't really relate to you anymore because you're not considered to be selling. And I talk to brokers who are really not selling. They're really not in the business of selling. They're really focused on their clients. And, and they tell me proudly that they're ignoring their branch manager. Or they're ignoring... The, the home office, you know, incentives that are thrown their way and they're still doing it the right way. And I beg them, I say, would you please go independent? Because, you know, I'd really like to say that all, all wirehouse reps, brokers, advisors are dirtbags. And as long as you're in that system, I can't say that with a straight face because there are people like you, you know? So what I would say is if, if you're focused on your clients and if you're wanting to be able to talk to your clients like an adult, and if you have done a, 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 an assessment of what you're paying the brokerage firm and you think you can do better on your own, and most people can, I mean, as, as you and I know, yep. then it makes sense to make that transition carefully. And what do I mean by carefully? Well, you know, you need some guidance. You need to know what the problems are. But it's, it's a lot easier than you think. That's probably the most important thing I would tell them is that it's not such a big transition. It's not that difficult. You've got to set up an office and you've got to set up, you know, your website and things like that. But there are outside vendors who can who can mostly help you do that. And of course, whoever you affiliate with, be it, you know, independent broker dealer or one of the custodians, they'll give you a lot of help and, and maybe even some financing on it. Indeed, I, I tell folks, you know, that what I what I help them with and, and guide them on, it's not rocket science, but it's just until and if you've ever dipped a toe into that to learn how to do all those steps, why would you necessarily know? And it's just a matter of, as you said, going through the motions of, of figuring out the things involved with, with making the change. So, so very much doable, um, but certainly an unknown for a lot of people until they get a chance to actually, uh, you know, peek over the fence, as they say. Well, and the other piece of it, the, the last piece of it is there's a lot of uncertainty about, are people going to really hire me if I'm just me? Mm -hmm. And the, the most interesting thing that most people discover when they go independent is their clients hired them. They didn't hire a brokerage firm. They hired them personally. 
And, and they built their own brand, whether they knew it or not. They just now, if they go up independent, they just need to leverage that brand, which is them. And, and the challenge is those folks have been hearing the little voices in the, the corner office telling them that that's not the case all along and that they that it is the brand that is that is everything. And, and so it's a matter of resetting their uh, their, their perspective on that. Um, and, and you're absolutely correct that the clients generally always have the affinity to the advisor, not the firm at the end of the day. So it certainly makes a difference. All right. Uh, next question. So I want you to uh, gaze into your crystal ball and tell us what you think will be a pretty normal thing in the RA model 10 years from now that is not either exist or not pretty widespread today. And you, and when I threw this at you before, you said you, you already had an answer, but I didn't ask you what it was because I wanted to hear it. <laughs> year, so. Well, I, I'm, I have a co-author. His name is Matthew Jackson. And we both wrote a white paper on the advisory firm of the future. And we talked to 12 consultants, basically, 12 people who consult with RIA firms on a regular basis who are kind of thought leaders. And we spent two hours with each of them on the phone, you know, just talking over, actually it was Zoom meetings mostly, just talking over what they see coming and what they expect. And I wrote a, I, the white paper is just a bare bones version of what they told me, so told us. So I wrote, a four-part series on the different components of that firm in the future. And if you're starting your firm now, you have a huge advantage over firms that have to pivot. You know, I, I feel really sorry for some of these mega firms because they're going to have to turn a battleship and it's going to be a, like in many cases, 180 degree turn. So I haven't answered your question yet. And I apologize for that. I just wanted to set the stage, but the single most important change that has happened in the last few years, and it was really brought about by COVID, was advisors and their clients are now comfortable talking like you and I are talking right now on, on Zoom. And so what that the, the broader implications of that are that location is now no longer a key factor in your marketing. And the Biggest implication of that is that you can now market to anybody anywhere in the country on the other side of the Mississippi. You can market to somebody on the moon. If there's somebody up there, you can, you can extend into Europe if you want. And, and that means that everybody else is now going to compete, be competing in your backyard. Every other advisory firm is competing with you anywhere in the country and you're competing with them. So how do you address that? Well, you can, you can be the cheapest advisor on the market and everybody can, can do a race to zero, you know, and finally you're giving your services away and begging people to work with you and, and going broke. And, and that's not really the, the model that we recommend, if that makes sense. The model that we recommend, the service model of the future is you find, they call it a niche, but what we call it is a specialty. You find a group of people who have something in common from a business standpoint, and you learn everything about them. And as you learn everything about them, you create a much deeper, better, more profound service that'll help them in their particular challenges, which a generalist won't address. And so the example we, we use on our white paper is um, a company called Dentist Advisors. Um, I think they're out of um, Denver. And so suppose you're just coming out of dental school right now and you're, you're, you've got cash flow or you're going to have cash flow. Um, you're, you're trying to figure out, should I affiliate with a dentist's office and become their successor? 
Should I affiliate? You know, should I should I specialize? Should I become a an oral surgeon? What are the what are the challenges there? You know, and how would I go about it? And what kind of financing would I need if I start my own office? And what do I need in the in that office? You've got a whole bunch of questions anyway. And and I don't even know what they all are, but dentist advisors knows extremely well what they all are. Yeah. So I'm coming out of dental school. I'm looking for an advisor who can help me. And it just so happens I live right next door to somebody who provides comprehensive financial planning on a fee basis. And I also happen to notice that there's a company called Dentist Advisors, which is way out there in Denver, that specializes in exactly the services I need. Who am I going to choose? Yep. And, and so what we see is eventually there's going to be a cadre of advisory firms that specialize in particular kinds of clients, and they're going to be cross-referring to each other. You know, I work with senior people who are, who are, who are um, partners in law firms, and I understand their challenges, and I understand what the partnership revenues are and how that works and how to negotiate and and, and everything, and a dentist comes, shows up at my door and says, I'd like you to help me. And I say, you know, I'm not exactly the right person to help you, but I know this firm in, in Denver, and I'm going to send you to them. And the firm in Denver, a lawyer walks into their office and says, you know, I'm on the partnership track. And so you suddenly you're going to have maybe 100, maybe 200 firms that are cross-referring to each other and creating much better value for their clients. And that's when people will pay for advice. They won't have to, you won't have to charge AUM anymore. They're going to pay directly for this advice. And you know, the people say people won't pay for financial planning advice. Well, they won't pay for generic advice. They won't pay for you to run a spreadsheet on them or you know, do an e-money calculation, but they'll pay anything if you'll get them started or help them in their business life in deep and profound ways. So that's one, and and that's a way to market nationally without having to compromise on your prices. In fact, you'll probably raise rates. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, and that and uh, blend into some of the other questions I have for you. I I would not bet against you on that theme. I'm a big believer in the whether we want to call it the niche approach, the differentiated approach. I actually came across. Uh, I didn't speak to him. I I found him online somehow. An advisor this past weekend, and his. Soul niche, and you get his website is 100% dialed into it, is on tattoo artists. So tattoo artists and the, the challenges of starting your own shop and the cash flow and everything that comes with that. And, and that's a perfect example where if you are a tattoo artist and you know the tattoo artist advisor is out there, that is probably who you are going to gravitate to. So I think- So you're suppose you're in one of the brokerage firms now and you're thinking about going independent. You t- take a year to prepare you pick a group of people, a niche or a specialty is what we call it, that you really like, that you really enjoy, that you have an affinity for. And you go to their conferences and you do a, a poll, offer to do a poll and do a write-up of the, the survey that you do for the, the magazine, for that group. And, and you figure out what their challenges are, you hang out with them, you talk to them about maybe creating some kind of a, a virtual meeting with speakers or what have you. And then when you go out on your own, you have your specialty. You can start right in on your specialty from day one. And that's the way I would start a firm. I would take a year to research a, a, a specialty and then start a firm that right from the start addresses that specialty. 
Well, that that we'll, we'll jump right to that question because I think you've kind of answered one, one of the questions I had further down was if you were if you Bob were with all your knowledge were started in RA today and let's say you somehow could achieve critical mass with some assets right away so it's not like a scale and issue what would it be and it sounds like you would you would pick a differentiated approach a niche approach and and be across the country. Is that a fair way to sum up? Yes. But then you've got a number of other questions. You know, you could join a firm, an established RIA firm and have your specialty and work within them and you wouldn't have to create an office. Um, you know, you've got some issues there. Um, that becomes a little more complicated because you're negotiating for some percentage of the firm with the clients you're bringing in. And if you're not bringing in a lot of clients, then you know, you've, you've got some issues with a partnership track or you start your own firm. But the biggest, biggest other question is, and you just wrote about it in advisor perspectives, how do I charge for this? You know, that dentist coming out of dental school does not have a million dollar retirement fund that will pay assets under management. And so you've got to have a flexible fee structure. You can't just charge AUM for everybody within your specialty because not everybody in your specialty is going to be a pre-retiree, which is basically where the money is. So, you know, there's, I, I did a survey on fees, as you know, and I asked advisory firms what they do and how they do it. And only about 35% of the firms are exclusively AUM now. Now that means that they're experimenting mostly, they're mostly AUM, but they're experimenting with other fee structures, you know, the hourly or the, the, um, the, the, the one that's predominant is the quarterly retainer fees. They don't call them retainer fees. They call them quarterly fees because retainers have a, it's kind of a term of art. But you, you can't charge AUM if you're working in a specialty. You've got to charge something else that pays you for the services you're providing directly. And um, I think eventually the profession is going to be hourly. Every other profession has gone to hourly. And Financial planning is kind of early in the process. I think they're going to eventually have to migrate that way. I think that the thing for folks that are listening to keep in mind that are, that are not yet in the RA model is that RIAs, you know, within some constraints, generally can do a lot of everything Bob just described, whether it's quarterlies, you know, whether we want to call them retainers or not, or hourly or, or different pricing structures. In, and you have that flexibility. There's certain processes and disclosures you have to put in place. But you know, the challenge is if you're at a firm, you know, a large broker dealer firm, and, and they, they have a very narrow way that you're allowed to price your services, you got to keep in mind, you are up against people that have significantly more flexibility in how to price this. And, and as Bob's prediction plays out over the coming years, those, those folks, it is what it is, are going to have an edge in, in, in how they can put together that service offering for the clients. So it's, it's I, I know it's self-serving for me to always point out the benefits of the RA model, but it, it is certainly one of them. Well, and it's interesting, too, because I think they're going to have an advantage over these mega firms, these mega RAA firms with $10 billion under management, and they're acquiring a whole bunch of retiring advisors, and, and they're, all, they're all charging AUM, and they're pretty fixed on telling their, their, their advisors, just like a brokerage firm does, here's how we do things. And I don't want to be told, here's how you're going to do things, and, and we've already determined that. I want to... I want to have the freedom to give the best advice I can the best way I can and charge the best way I can. 
And it's, it's uh, you, you would have thought I gave them to you ahead of time because you just walked me into the next question. So thinking of the mega firms, there is the prediction out there that there will be, and to some degree there is already now, but that there will eventually be maybe a half dozen national mega firms or some, some people say there'll be super regional RA firms that are kind of mm-hmm. household names, that sort of thing. Do, do you think that prediction will bear out and is, and is that a good thing if it does? Well, there, there's two answers to your question. The first answer is I've, I've actually presented on this. I was, I, I debated years ago, Mark Hurley, um, who most people don't know who he is, but years ago he predicted that the entire profession would gravitate toward a, a small handful of large firms and everybody else would be like, like mice scurrying under their feet. And, and so I, we did two debates. And unfortunately, it turns out Mark was not the best debater in the world. So it wasn't really a, a, a fair debate. But I did some research. And then I presented at the ICPA meeting also. Um, if you look at the accounting profession and the law profession, which are two professions that have been around longer than financial planning and are further along in their evolution, what you find is a small number in the case of um, the AC, uh, CPAs for large firms. And then Maybe a maybe a dozen, maybe twenty regional firms, probably not twenty, probably a dozen. And then there are firms that dominate in particular cities, and that might be as many as one hundred or one hundred and fifty. And it's exactly the same thing with the legal profession. You've got three or four really, really large national firms. You've got firms that have a have a regional, um, dominance, if you will, and then firms that are ultra competitive within their cities. But the interesting thing is both professions, the, the at least 70% and, and closer to 80% of the lawyers, of the accountants are with very small firms. And you know how that works. You're on a partner track or you're hoping to be on a partner track with a law firm. And for some reason, you're just not willing to go through all the crap that that requires, or maybe you discover that you're not making the progress you think you will. And so you go out and start your own firm. Um, same thing with accountants, you know, and, and accountants, you know, the, the way they do financial planning here sucks. I'm going to go out and do it myself. And so there's a lot of recruiting at the big firms and then people leave the big firms and start their own firms. And some of those firms become big. And then the cycle begins again. There's a lot of shedding going on. And I don't see any reason why financial planning can't be the same thing. There are going to be mega firms and there are going to be large regional firms. There are going to be city firms. And the, the center of gravity is going to be small firms that are evolving, some of them into large firms and some of them not. And that's just seems to be the way a profession works. Um, but the other aspect of the question, I said there were two answers. When we talk to these 12 the thought leading consultants with the large and understand most of them make most of their money with the large firms because the large firms have, you know, money to pay them, if you will. Mm-hmm. But all of them said, we don't think those large firms represent the future. They're, what they're doing is they're reproducing the brokerage firm model in a, in a fee only structure. They're creating basically a bureaucracy. They're creating independent offices around the country. They're standardizing what they do. Their their advisors are on a W-2 model and they're charging AUM and none of that is what they think. And they'll they'll take anybody who fogs a mirror as long as they can pay AUM. 
And that doesn't seem to any of the consultants we talk to to be the model of the future. That's interesting. That's from the consultants that uh, are, are hired by a lot of those folks. So kind of, kind of tell. And I, I have seen it, I think, because I've been asked that when, when folks are maybe considering some of those firms and, and you do see, right, some of these, some, not all of the larger firms that themselves are trying to pick a lane and, and stay in it, whether it's a, an investment philosophy or, or who they cater to. And I, I think that will be more and more necessary for the, for the same reasons to, to, to differentiate and, and to stand for something. And, uh, and, and I'm seeing it's, it's interesting whether the term breakaway becomes a common phrase used with folks leaving RAs because uh, I, I am seeing that. that, that when, I, when I started my business, I didn't necessarily expect to see it as often, but where folks, they just feel either they've outgrown the RA or they, they feel the RA has outgrown them. You know, it's not their RA, they're part of someone else's and then that they are quote unquote breaking away now to, to start their own. So, so my experience certainly mirrors what, what, you're, uh, what you just explained uh, for sure. So related, and again, we're, 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 these are tying beautifully together. I wish I could say I, I did this on purpose, but, but my next question was, was to ask you, okay, with these big firms, for, for better or worse, they exist. Is there still room for the small firm out there? And I think we've kind of answered that on, on some of these questions out here, but I'll just throw it out there. I mean, even for a firm under, say, $100 million, where the economics get a little more challenged, I, I could guess what your answer will be based on your, your previous responses, but would love to, to your take. Is there a place for those folks going forward um, in, in light of this enormous competition they have out there? Well, I think, I think for, for one thing, we're not really going to measure firms by AUM eventually. I think we're going to measure firms by their, their gross revenues per year. And so, you know, the, what, what you're talking about is a firm that maybe is taking in $200,000 a year. This is the small, it will be considered a small RIA. And, and would that be a valuable or a, a viable firm? I'm going to say that that's not a firm that's going to survive generation, generationally. Um, what, what I'm seeing is a lot of advisory firms, and this is a Kind of, kind of straying a little bit from your question, but you know, when I was starting out in in this business in 1982, which you know we used to chisel financial plans on a on stone tablets back then, you know, yeah. and we you kept them short, you kept them short, chisel them, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. That, that so it was a, it was a different model back. But you know, the 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 people who I grew up with were the the pioneers, the rebels. They were creating a whole different way of of operating. And the brokerage firms back then were very much the enemy. And it was a, a really heady time for innovation and for, you know, figuring out new models and new ways of doing things. And, and now all the people who look like me, who have, you know, you might have noticed I have some gray hair on me. <laughs> they're, they're now the people who are retarding progress. Their next generation are coming to them and saying, you know, here's what we want to do with a firm. We think this is where that we need to go. And 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 the the the, the guy who looks like me says, you know, when I retire in 20 years, I, I think we can consider that model. Yeah. You know, and and so I'm I'm ashamed to say that that the people who look like me who I grew up with were who were the pioneers are now the retardants of progress, if you will. Um, so what I'm seeing is. For that small firm, you're asking, you, you asked a specific question. I'm going to broaden the question a little bit. 
Sure. Those small firms, the, the successor is going to the advisor and saying, here's the firm I want to inherit. Here's the firm I want this firm to become when I'm running it. And it's, a, it's, it's going to have to grow. It's going to have to evolve. We're going to have to invest in it. We're going to have to bring in more people. The firms that are willing to listen to that next generation, and that's be it, you know, the $200,000 revenue firm or, or $10 million revenue firm, those are the firms that are going to succeed. So it's not really necessarily size. It's, it's more ossification. Um, what we see in the future, what we, we suggested, one of the questions we asked is, you know, what size firm is the advisory firm of the future going to be? What size does it have to be? The firms that are going to be succeeding multi-generationally are eventually going to have to be multi-partner. They're going to have to have a full-time CEO or COO who's the operating person. And they're, they're going to have to have systems and procedures internally that make it easy for them to deliver a really deep service model for their clients. Those are the characteristics. Now, you can do that, I think, with a two-partner firm that's highly leveraged by technology. I think you can do that with a hundred-partner firm that's, you know, that, that has a lot of staff leverage. Um, but the characteristics are not necessarily size. They're more a willingness to evolve and a willingness to, to create something sustainable. And, you know, some firms are sustainable. I would argue some of the big firms are not sustainable. I would argue that they're, you know, dinosaurs were not sustainable. They couldn't react to the climate change. We're going to go through a radical climate change in the next five, 10 years. And I'm wondering if some of those firms will be able to pivot fast enough. Yeah, it, it is. And, and uh, should should only be good thing for investors because that, that means there's going to be new approaches, new models that the investors will gravitate to what works best for them. And uh, and as long as there's demand, I, th I think there will be folks looking to fill that. So that, that should be a good takeaway and related to you know, the kind of the younger generation or people not as tenured as, as some other folks, um, a, a question is, and this is, uh, I think, a good sign. So I get occasionally, it's not it's not by any means my main market, but it is encouraging to see. I have college students reach out to me that are in a financial planning program, and now they can even graduate with all the coursework of a CFP and things like that. So it's and they're wanting to already learn more about the RA before they even graduate college, which I, which I think is great. And I you know, try to provide a resource for them. But what would you tell a college student now in light of kind of considering some of the things you just mentioned of what they should do upon graduating if they want to get into this industry? What advice would you give that person? You know, the advice used to be go work for a brokerage firm for a couple of years, get trained, and then and then leave. That is not my advice now. Um, there are there, there's as as you know, there's a huge shortage of talent. Anybody who goes any any of the, the the people in the brokerage world and anybody who comes out of college will find a welcoming environment. People really want and need talent these days, and so you're you're kind of in a a, a seller's market. I'm not sure which 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 way you're. You're a buyer or a seller. It, you're 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 in a good market when you come out. And so you need to go into a firm that has a commitment to developing the talent they have. In other words, a firm that is capable of and willing to 
enhance your career. And that's not every firm. That's, you know, I, we ju I just wrote a profile and we had somebody speak at our conference about they have a, a staff first culture. And, you know, everybody says client first, you know, put the client's interest ahead of, of everybody else. And their argument is, no, we put the staff's um, considerations ahead of everybody else because the staff is what creates the client service. And they break out as many as five, six, seven hours a week for training, for internal training, for internal discussions and, and um, mentorship. And, and then you have the firms that are hiring you and they, they tell you, all right, you're going to work in operations for a couple of years and shuffle papers around and work your way up the ladder. And then you're going to be an associate advisor for a while and supporting an advisor. And then you're going to be in it. It might be, you know, 10 years before you're sitting in front of a client. Um, I want to be sitting in front of a client within a year with the support of a senior advisor. And that's a question I would ask. I would say, how long, how long does it typically take for somebody like me to be in the room in a client meeting, having meaningful conversations with that client, perhaps or perhaps not with the supervision of somebody senior? I want to develop those skills and I want to do it quickly. And the only way I can do it is to, is to do it. And are you willing to, to live with me if I make some mistakes when I do it? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's great advice. And it's just, you know, having the confidence to demand that or ask for that, I think is, is the key. So, so hopefully folks that are uh, in that situation that are listening now, I think that will give them the motivation to realize there is, there is a path where you can achieve that. It's just a matter of finding it and, and, said, hey, I need this. And, and the RA itself might not realize that's what the desire expectation is. So, so it doesn't hurt to point it out to them because they might not realize that's that's the preferred path anyway. So I uh, certainly now, appreciate now that. that. Said, now that said, the brokerage firms are very active in the campuses. But interestingly, so is Fidelity, so is Schwab, especially so is Vanguard. Yep. And, you know, I, I don't know that those other avenues are going to get you as far as you need to go as quickly as you need to go. I think an awful lot of average students who don't really know what they want to do or how they want to do it are going to end up working on a W-2 basis for one of these firms. Vanguard, I think, is the, the, the largest employer or, or hirer right now, if you will. And um, I, I hate to say this, but I, I think when you work for Vanguard as a financial advisor, you're basically a mutual fund salesperson. You're recommending one particular, it's a good fund, good funds, good, you know, company. But I don't think that's real financial planning. In that role. Yeah. And they're, they're hiring quote unquote CFPs to do that role. And if, yeah, if it's not, you know, exactly as, uh, as the student or, than graduate would want. Yeah, that's that's good advice. Certainly good consideration because th those opportunities are out there and just whether it's the best fit or not. Uh, so kind of related about fit and, and we'll go back to now more tenured advisors. So we'll think of someone at a, at a wirehouse firm. I'm, I'm a big believer in being a straight shooter with anyone I've been talking to. And and I don't, I don't have rose-colored glasses on while there's uh, significant advantages to the RA model. It is not for everyone, and there's reasons it might not be for everyone. So I am a believer you, you should give both sides of the coin. So from your experience, who, and again, we're thinking of more of a tenured advisor, maybe in a you know traditional W-2, 
who who is the RA model not a good fit for in your eyes? You know, I think it's a bad approach to be a straight shooter. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it myself. I don't I don't think that's a you know, but um, well, you, you and I are both in the same business. Fundamentally, what we're trying to do is help people change when really every instinct tells them they don't want to change. Most people resist making transitions, resist crossing boundaries. They don't, you know, they're comfortable where they are. And that comfortableness is always inevitably holding them back from something better. You're, the, more, the more you settle into a comfort level, the less likely you are to make a change for the better. And those changes for the better are uncomfortable. They're difficult. They require a lot more work. And so, you know, I, I know a lot of people and I, you know, I, I, I have done consulting in the past and, and have um, talked to people and inevitably I'll talk to people who say, you know what, I don't really see the grass being that much greener over there that it's worth jumping over this, this fence. I'll say, but it's a low fence. It's not a high fence. And they'll say, yeah, but I'm going to have to walk all the way over to that damn fence. And then I'm going to have to like climb over it. And then I'm going to have to eat the grass that maybe it's a little greener over there, but it's not that much greener. There are people who really are not comfortable with change. They're really not that. And the, the fact that they're comfortable where they are, and the fact that they feel like they're doing good work for the people that they're working for. Um, and maybe they're not the best. Um, I, I, I hate the word producer. I don't think that's really effectively what's good, but that's how the brokerage firm sees it. Maybe they're not the best producer. And so the money that they're paying the brokerage firm is roughly comparable to what they're getting from the brokerage firm in terms of services, in terms of um, and that's a, it, it can be a complicated calculation when you calculate all the other things, all the other revenue sources for the bro. But it, in general, they're being, they're, they're, they're getting roughly what they're paying for. In if you talk about subtracting the payout, those people are not really going to thrive in the RA marketplace. And, and that's the question that I would ask. Do you think you could thrive in the RA marketplace? You know, just being an average, adequate RIA, you know, and, and, and grousing about the fact that you had to do all this stuff and then you're back in exactly the same position you were before, except maybe not being quite as well taken care of, that person shouldn't leave. That person is ideally suited for where they are. But the people who I tend to talk to, they're like human rockets. You know, they're, they're capable of... of um, bonding with anybody they talk to when they, they market. They don't market themselves. They just look for ways they can help other people. They find ways they can help other people. They bring in clients. They, they offer great services. And they're, being, they're paying way too much for the, the office they're getting, for, for any support they're getting. And they're being constrained by the, the, you know, the compliance department says, hey, you can't tell your clients that. You know, that's the truth. We don't want any more of that out there. Um, any, anybody who feels uncomfortable with those constraints and who feels like they've got a great career in front of them, um, they're probably being held back by the brokerage model. The brokerage firm sees them as a resource for it, not them as a resource for themselves and their clients. And, and that's, that's a distinction I draw anyway. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. And then, like I said, there's there's some folks that the, the hard truth of it is it's it's just not better for them to, to make a change um, and that they are possibly in the, the best situation they're in now. But I, I also say, hey, you need to you need to understand both sides to, to know that that's the case, because because oftentimes folks will determine that the grass is greener and the fence is low enough and, and it is worth the uh, uh, the process to go through it. So um, I think I think that's helpful perspective for sure. Uh, well, so and, then, the, and then one, one other thing you, you probably ought to consider is, is the warehouse model going to survive the next 15 years? And so, and, and I, I, I want to opine on that, but I think that is a question that everybody well, should well, let's, let's throw that one in there. Will the, will, uh, actually kind of the, the variation I had, which we kind of touched on is, is which, which channel, and so it sounds like you might be answering warehouse, which channel over the coming years, decades is going to feel the most, whether pain's the right word from, from this transition to more independence or the RA model, which, which one's going to struggle the most in your opinion? I think we know the answer, but we'd love to hear your perspective. Well, I've, I've got a model for predicting the future. And, um, you know, it, if, you, if you look at a waterfall, you see a lake on top of a plateau somewhere that where water has been running into it from a stream and then there's a stream running out of that lake and it goes down a waterfall and it rushes down toward another pool. And then somewhere down the, the way, another stream rushes down into a bigger pool and then eventually it runs into the ocean. And the ocean is you know, hundreds of feet lower than that top pool. And when I talk to people who have left the brokerage model to work with independent RIA firms, and I say to them, what would you say if I held a gun to your head and said, you, either you go back to the brokerage model, brokerage world, or I'll pull the trigger. They'd say, pull the trigger. Yep. And then when I, when I talk to people who have gone fully independent, who are fee only, who are working with one of the custodians who've left the, the independent broker dealer model, I ask them the same question. They say the same thing. They say, pull the trigger. I'm not going back. And so water flows downhill and so do advisors flow from the brokerage firms to the independent RIA, independent broker dealers to independent RIA models. And I don't see any water flowing uphill from the ocean back up into, and I don't see advisors flowing back up into the brokerage model. So we know the direction of the future. We just don't know the speed at which that's going to move. I have seen lately, and you probably have a, a much better pulse, a finger on the pulse than I do. I've seen lately a lot of people questioning the brokerage model that they're in and wondering what they can do better and holding off because of COVID, because they're, but they're noticing that they've got a lot more opportunity with this Zoom meeting stuff. They're noticing that the restrictions are becoming a little, a little greater. Some of the brokerage firms are saying you got to come back in the office, even though they're not comfortable doing it. Um, I think you're going to see an accelerating trend. And when it accelerates, the way it works is somebody leaves and goes to a different model. And then at the next Investments and Wealth Management Institute conference, their friends ask them, how's it going? And they say, it's going great. And then they think about leaving. And then their friends ask them. And so I think there's going to be an accelerating exodus of the, the best, most ambitious people from the brokerage model to the independent broker dealer model or to the RIA model. And 
the same thing from the independent broker dealer, the independent RA model. I see that accelerating. I'm not sure what the brokerage firms are going to do after the next major scandal, which I think is coming sooner or later. I don't know what it's going to be, but I think, and after a bunch of their best people have left, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be left with fewer people, not their best people and an outmoded service and um, revenue model. And I'm wondering, you know, whether that'll mean that they'll have to take the whole, um, the whole thing fee only, you know, which I, I keep waiting for the Merrill Lynch senior vice president to say, you know what, I, I'll, I'll pay you money. I want to take the entire field for us. I'm going to make it the biggest independent RIA there is out there. Um, I think sooner or later that's going to happen. I, I think advisors who, who leave will get out early from under that and be um, better position for the future than the brokerage firms are right now. That's just, you know, my, my opinion. Yeah, I think uh, I always point out the, uh, you know, we use the term independent broker dealers, but, but most of the larger quote unquote independent broker dealers are now more than 50% of their assets are in fee-based assets anyway. So, so arguably they're independent RIAs that, that also happen to have a broker dealer. So it's, it's interesting how that will continue to evolve and, uh, but, but ultimately breaking away from that larger organization and, and, and having the more flexibility of, you know, a smaller RA model is, is certainly going to remain as an appeal for, for many folks. Um, and if you're not selling that whole FINRA compliance thing makes no sense for you. It's, yeah. constricting, it's constricting you without protecting anybody. Yep. Yep. Indeed. Well, the, the last question, cause we actually, uh, there was one or two other ones, but we ended up already answering them kind of morphed in. And the last one's my favorite one. So not, not to hype it up, but I, I, I curious what your answer will be. And, uh, it, it's a hypothetical, but would would love to get your perspective. So imagine, Bob, you you are a king for the day, and you can wave your wand and change one thing about our industry, and you don't have to worry about regulators or lobbyists or or politicians or anything like that. There's one thing you get to change. What is it? You know, I I, I thought you were going to ask a hard question. That was that's an easy question. <laughs> I only gave you one. I said you had to narrow it down to one. So <laughs> you know, well, narrowing it down might be hard, but it's not really that hard. I would get rid of sales incentives, which means commissions, and of course, which means all the other sales incentives. I think the biggest conflict between advice and the consumer is the agenda of I need to sell something. In order to in order to get paid, I you know that I, I'm going to recommend an annuity because that's how I get paid. Even though I could recommend you know a, a, a group of ETFs which would accomplish roughly the same thing. Um, I'm going to recommend the um, separately managed account that my brokerage firm has incented me to to recommend. Um, any any commission, any other distraction to giving the very best advice that I could give to that client, any other incentive that somebody imposes between me and that advice, I would get rid of. I would say that everybody has to be, and the term fee only is thrown out and fee-based is thrown out. But I think the, the, the real issue is whenever someone has an incentive to recommend something that might not be the very best thing to recommend, I think that's a problem for the profession. I'd get rid of those and, and banish them. 
And so you're going to take away my scepter now, right? My crown. Yeah, yeah. You know. <laughs> well, I'm sure we, we could probably do which would be which would be intriguing a whole a whole episode on on uh, waving of the wand. But it's it's interesting because you just answered if you could do it in a day, and the I wouldn't bet against you that that will come to fruition eventually. But it just won't be in a day. It it, it could it could be a while. But uh, the the trends seem to be going in that direction, and uh, we'll see how close we one day get. I don't know if we'll get 100, percent but. Uh, but it's a it's a, a certainly a good thought for sure. Um, so Bob, thank you, thank you very much. This has been extraordinarily enlightening. Uh, you're always a wealth of knowledge. Uh, for folks that do want, and I'll put this in the show notes. But for folks that do want to learn more about your newsletter, your conference, uh, and what and your services, what's the best way they can uh, find you or get a hold of you? Well, you know, the, the, really the easy way is to send me an email, bob at bobveras.com, B-O-B at B-O-B-V-E-R-E-S.com. And I, I'll have to tell you, I get a lot of messages, not a lot, I, I, I get messages from people and, and their first line is, Bob, you're completely full of shit. <laughs> and the interesting thing is often a disturbing number of times they're right. And so if I was full of shit and anything I said, send me a message and tell me that. Otherwise, you can you can express an interest in my service or interest in coming to our conference or whatever. But, um, you know, I'm, I, 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 the, the times I learn are the times when people say, you know, you said something, I disagree with it. It wasn't right. And generally, their, their perspective is one I haven't considered. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that openness. And yeah, we, we, we definitely do not want to be in our own echo chambers. We need to hear different perspectives. And, uh, and so that's why I wanted you on here. I, I can talk about this stuff for, for days on end. And it's always good to hear different perspectives, different takes on things. So uh, certainly appreciate your time today. Appreciate uh, all you do for the industry as a whole and, and encourage people to reach out to Bob. Like I said, we'll have in the show notes, the email address as well as his website if you're interested in the newsletter or conference. So, Bob, with that, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you, everyone, for uh, tuning into this episode. I hope you found uh, lots of great information from Bob uh, and all the questions we went over. Uh, if you're not already there, head on over to transitiontora.com, where I have my entire lineup of videos, podcasts, white papers, all kinds of information. Uh, and if you'd like to dive deeper into any of the topics discussed on today's episode or any of my other episodes, uh, on the top of every page of the website as a contact link, you can instantly and easily uh, set a time to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me again to talk about any of the topics on this episode or anything else already related. Uh, would, would be happy to have that conversation with you. So again, head on over to transition2ra.com and you can find all the resources I just mentioned. Thanks for tuning in.